Mark 16, starting at verse 14. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So now that you've heard that passage, maybe you can understand my concern. First, we have to remember that the Gospel of Mark might as well be called the Gospel of St. Peter because the scholars and uh, experts are very confident that Mark, being in close company with Peter, had recorded what Peter told him. So in effect, this is a, a uh, sort of transcription of the spoken Gospel of Peter. And this means a lot as we're reading this passage because it gives you a, a unique understanding of Peter's point of view. And Peter is a character that we spend a lot of time thinking about and talking about in our study together of the Gospels. Mark has a unique writing style, and so the scholars have said that they doubt that this last part of the Gospel of Mark was actually written by him because their writing style changes significantly. And yet, from as early as 200 years after the first copy of this passage or this scripture uh, was distributed, it was accepted as a reliable portion of the Gospel of Mark. In other words, it is clearly not written by the same hand, but it is still considered part of the canon or the accepted scripture. Now, I have a personal theory about that, which is strictly my own, and I want to make that really clear. This is from me and me alone. I, I think that it's interesting that this passage was added later and that around the same time that Peter was doing his preaching and his evangelism, there was a case where the Apostle Paul had been bitten by a poisonous viper and survived while on a mission for God. There was a case where Barsabbas Justus was forced to drink poison because he wouldn't, con, you know, wouldn't uh, give up his testimony about Christ and it didn't kill him. And of course, Peter has record of having healed the sick on different occasions. I find that interesting. Who knows, maybe it's an afterthought that Peter put in while he was uh, reviewing Mark's notes. Doesn't really matter, but here's the thing. We have to deal with it because it's there. And this is what I'd like to share with you now. First of all, it makes a statement about belief and baptism. First, he says to us that you have to believe and be baptized or else you're condemned. Well, first, I want to talk about belief. And this is, this is heavy. 
But I think it's so important. I think this is so vitally important to, to our Christian journey together. To understand belief in the context, you've got to draw first upon the whole Bible and the whole history of God and God's people. There's where you find the truth, not so much in a single passage, but in the consistent behavior of God and those whom God favors. Now, with that in mind, belief is not so much about what humans expect, but what God expects. Well, so that's the first principle I really want us to hold to. You can have faith that God will provide and deliver and fulfill, but it depends a lot on your human understanding, and therefore you might find yourself wrong about what you should believe and expect from God. On the other hand, God knows the human heart and mind perfectly, and therefore God's understanding and expectation is without error. So having put that before us, then we have to look at faith and belief as something that originates with God's expectation. It's probably been evident to you at different times in your life that you expected God to do something and God didn't come through for you. There are times when you had certain expectations of God and you simply didn't see them met and you began to have doubts about God. Well, I'm going to argue that since belief really is something that originates with God and that is really God-oriented, then really we shouldn't be surprised that sometimes our expectations from God aren't met. That shouldn't surprise us at all. You see, belief that's centered in the human mind is going to be flawed, naturally. However, belief that's centered in the heart of a human, and in the Bible, the human heart is understood to be the, the, the moral center of your soul, that part of you that is eternal. And so this is the place where your true nature resides. This is the, the you that God will want to know in the most personal way. You could say in modern psychological terms, it's the difference between the id, the ego, and the superego. There's this ironic capacity that people have, and I don't know if you've done this, but I certainly have. You talk to yourself as though you're two people. You, you see yourself both in a conscious way and a subconscious way, and sometimes you, you do things you don't want to do, and you say, why did you do that? As though you should answer you about that. It gets very confusing, but at the end of the day, what we realize is that in our center of our being, there is this eternal person. We've been doing a study on, on the uh, podcast of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, and all I can tell you is, is go, go listen to that, go read that book, his explanations for this internal drive towards a certain moral standard are impeccable. But here's the thing. It turns out maybe that what belief is, is not so much about your opinion of God, but God's opinion of you. I really want to hit that again. Let's think about this for a minute. What if belief isn't so much about your opinion of God, but it's God's opinion of you, because that makes all the difference. That makes all the difference. You see, if you look at it in that vein, then you realize that, that it isn't so much 
uh, an act of assent or agreement with a certain belief system as it is a surrender and submission to the center of that system. In other words, when you believe with your heart that Christ is the Lord, Son of God, risen Savior who has redeemed you by his death, it is God's opinion of your belief that matters way more than your technical understanding of the thing. Do you understand? There's a very famous analogy that has been used by preachers for decades, and I'm going to use it now. It's about a certain French tightrope walker who routinely walked a wire across the gorge of the Niagara Falls, Horseshoe, Cur Horseshoe <laughs> wrong reference, Horseshoe Falls, of Canadian Falls, and this guy would walk this wire back and forth every day to the throngs of, of cheering crowds, and, and uh, somehow or another, a guy came to question about came to question him as to whether he could do that or not. Someone had come and heard that this fella could do this thing, but he wasn't convinced because he hadn't seen it yet, and and. Uh, after having seen it, the guy said, well, I, I believe now. I believe you can do that. And the Frenchman challenged him by saying, you know, I, I believe that I can do it too, but the question is, is how much are you willing to put your faith in that? And so what happens is, is the Frenchman challenges him to climb into a wheelbarrow and let him walk the man across the wire over the chasm in the wheelbarrow and back again and says, now, if you really believe, this will be a sign of your belief. And of course, the man says, nah, I don't think so. You're going to be fine if you do it, but I'm not too into it. Now, the purpose of this analogy is simply to say that, that assent is one thing. It's an intellectual agreement about a thing, but, but you haven't really put your eternal life on the line until you climb into the wheelbarrow, so to speak. And so God's opinion of your belief stems from the fact that God is convinced that if God called you to get into that wheelbarrow, you would do it. In fact, you would be compelled to do it. You would feel that you have to do it. And this is the thing that really drives us when we're talking about belief. Confidence in God's love and saving grace through Jesus Christ. Confidence that Jesus is God in the flesh who's born for, for us our sin and therefore is the Holy One of God who then dies, rises again, ascends to heaven and will come again. And your belief in that isn't so much an agreement from your mind as it is a dependency from your heart. I need for this to be true. It has to be true. Everything in my being resides in the trust that this is true. Do you see the difference? If you don't see it now, should you have time to think about it before the last breath you breathe, you'll understand what real belief is. Therefore, when he says that you must believe in order to be saved and avoid condemnation, this is what he's talking about. And what about baptism? Does it really mean that you get immersed in water and you have to 
to be sprinkled with water or baptized with water in some way. Not really, not as far as I'm concerned, because there are evidence, plenty of uh, examples in Scripture of people being saved without having experienced this worship act we call baptism. Baptism in Jesus' context in this case is more of a recognition then that we must join with the body of Christ, having put our belief in Christ as our Savior. We join with the others who also believe thusly in their heart. And we become in union with them and the Holy Spirit, the church or the body of Christ, the very representative signs of Christ on earth. Now, why is this significant to the passage we just heard? Because it's about signs. It's about signs that Christ is at work in you, that the Holy Spirit resides in you. And so your belief in your baptism are your entry points into the body of Christ. And having been joined with the body of Christ, Jesus says in this passage, there will be signs, there will be indications that you are with Christ and in the family of God through the Holy Spirit. This is what we would call the family of God under the authority of Jesus Christ. It really comes down to a statement of Christ being the head of the church and we the body of the church and therefore his is the authority that makes all those signs possible. To put it another way, what Jesus wants you to hear, I believe, in this passage is, is that if you have put your faith in him, joined the body of Christ, and then accepted him as the Lord or the authority of your life, then you'll see all sorts of things happen that will be signs that he has authority over all of creation and he has extended that to you and through you to the world around you. Now, if Jesus has absolute authority, and we know he does because his own authority brought him from the grave and into resurrected life, then his authority given to us is, in effect, us being his word or his representation. I, I'm hesitant to use this reference, but if there are any Game of Thrones fans out here, he's the hand. You are the hand. He's the one with the authority, and he's made you the hand. Is that a proper reference to Game of Thrones? Because I haven't really paid any attention to it. I'm sorry. I hope it doesn't wreck our friendship. But I'm a little bit aware of it, but not that much. Okay. So, meaning that his authority is extended through you as members of the body of Christ. You are, in effect, the hand. You are the voice and, and, and the hands and the feet of Christ. You literally are Christ to the world. How easily we forget that. And this could turn easily into one of those messages that make you feel bad because of your moral behavior and all of this, but I don't want to go there. What I want you to understand is, is that he has given you the authority to fulfill a particular role that you accepted when you put your faith and belief in his salvation and lordship of your lives. When we say that our goal here at Shiloh is to be vital to the well-being of the community, that's what we mean. 
We don't mean because of our human inventions, because of the things that we generate in our own intellect, in our own collective leadership that might help the community. What we mean is, is that we would be Christ to this community, that through us they would witness Christ, and not just in our words and our deeds, but in the very authority that Christ has extended down from high to us. Now we can talk about this passage that we read. We all, many of us anyway, are probably aware that there are churches and bodies of Christians who literally interpret these passages. Some literally interpret that you aren't baptized unless you get under the water. Some literally interpret that you're not really filled with the Holy Spirit unless you can pick up poisonous snakes and dance around with them and not get hurt. Some people literally believe that you have to prove by drinking some poison and not dying from it that you're a believer in this way. I don't think so. I don't think so. I would refer you back to what I said at the beginning. I have a hunch this was Peter or some contemporary of Peter's saying one of the ways we knew that Paul and Barsabbas and Peter and the other apostles were working within the spirit was because we saw the signs Jesus had told them to look for. What sort of signs do you need to see? That's the question. I don't know about you, but I'm not anticipating an opportunity to handle a poisonous snake in order to prove that I am coming with the authority of Christ. I don't see that happening unless one should happen to appear here at any moment. I, you know, if you don't see me up here wrestling with uh, you know, some sort of viper, I'm guessing that that's not how God extends authority from Christ through me to you. Perhaps he extends it through the word. Perhaps he extends it in the way that you hear the word and it moves your spirit. A highly motivated and skillful speaker might be able to stir your spirit for a little while, but if you leave here changed permanently and it grows weakly and becomes a, a reshaping of your life and a dedication to Christ that you never knew before, this would be the authority of Christ through the word spoken by a person, me, or one of the others here who speak to you. And so what this passage really seems to be about to me is an indication that if God has given authority to Christ over all the earth and Christ has extended that authority through you to be his body, his voice, his hands, his feet, then there will be indications of that precisely when they're needed. If you look at the miracles of the Bible, they always come down to timing. And so many times we get stuck on the miracle itself and we imagine that the miracle is the thing. But the timing is the thing. In the midst of a vital mission to the long-term vitality of the body of Christ, the Apostle Paul was struck by a viper, no doubt because of Satan's efforts to end Paul's missionary journey before it took hold. And we find that the Holy Spirit intervenes and protects him. You see, when you're on a mission from God, like the Blues Brothers, you know, you're going to find yourselves, not so much like the Blues Brothers, but in a real sense, experiencing holy provision and protection. You will find that God has provided you with everything you need and has prevented you from being affected or afflicted 
by anything that would hold you fast and keep you from fulfilling God's purposes in your life. But you know that only works if you put yourself in the position of subordinate. In other words, if you find yourself like a soldier committed to fulfilling the mission, whatever the personal cost to you, then you have submitted yourself to a higher ideal and you will succeed even if it costs you everything as long as the mission is fulfilled. It's funny how in church we've turned the word mission and missions into something that really sounds more like places we send checks to. When in fact, our purpose is to follow our Lord Jesus, our commander in chief, wherever he sends us and to act in his authority in whatever way he calls us to whatever dangers there might be, whatever costs there might be. And that is an entirely different view of mission. And that is one that we are all meant to be engaged in. The Lord rebuked the disciples because they were reclining at the table. I like our ESV version of this because I can picture them sitting around crying in their beer because the whole thing just completely fell flat. Jesus was going to be the king, the ruler. He was going to take everything in charge and they were going to be his cabinet or his, his uh, uh, prime ministers and leaders and so forth. And, and instead, the whole thing has completely collapsed. Jesus is dead. And they were told by some people who had witnessed that he was not so dead after all, that he was actually alive and had re uh, resurrected from the dead. And, and they chose not to believe it. And Jesus comes in and he sees them sitting at the table, reclining at the table. You know, they didn't have table and chairs like we did. They sat on the floor at their tables. They relaxed and sort of laid on their sides while they ate. That's important because that's a, a lounging position, and I want you to imagine that because he rebukes them because having heard the news that the Lord has been resurrected from the dead on the third day, just as he told them he would, he finds them relaxing. You know, laying on a couch watching the football game with a bowl of pretzels. Think of it that way. Can you understand why he rebuked them? Because he expects us to respond to him with action and activity, with energy and vitality. And so, as I said before, the belief that we profess isn't so much about our assent to his news, but about our dependence upon it. It isn't about your agreement that Christ is Lord, risen from the dead, coming again, it is your dependence upon that truth that makes all the difference. And speaking of sitting around the table, I know it's Mother's Day, so I'll leave you with this. When your children and your family is gathered around the table, what do they see? Moms, dads, grandmas, grandpas, what do they see? Do they witness your faith, your real belief your absolute dependence upon Jesus Christ? Do they see you showing signs of authority from Christ to proclaim the gospel and to make a difference 
in the lives of those that God has given you as a witness for Christ. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. And surely, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, for our absent-minded reclining, we apologize. For our lack of utter dependence upon you, we apologize. For our, for our lack of courage and, and fortitude, we apologize. But having said all that, Lord, we understand that, that for our sake you died and rose again. For our sake you imparted the Holy Spirit to those who would be in your authority, Christ to us. And now in the same vein, you are speaking to your people. And we accept, Lord, that some among us are awakening in a new way now for the first time, or for the first time in a long time. And so we invite your spirit to act, Lord, and to bring about transformation and change so that we become utterly dependent on you for everything, and then go into the world under your authority because we can't help it, because we have to, because our lives and our souls depend on serving you and glorifying you. This is our prayer. Amen.